It's Monday, September 14th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from Stock Advisor Canada, Taylor Muckerman. Happy Monday, guys. You too. It's a little chill in the air out there today. It is, it's nice. nice it's fall, fall has actually arrived. The first week of football right brings it right yes. in. Perfect timing. It's all very good. I like it. Yeah, very nice. Did you get outside this weekend? I did. You know, for me, the weekends, I mean, it's it's. I love to get out there and walk our dogs just because. You know, you're working during the week, and they're kind of just hanging out in the backyard playing. So, anytime I can get out there and walk them around for a bit, it's always enjoyable. Did you get outside? You just spent a lot of time outside. I did. I was in Utah Share with for folks like, where you just went. <laughs> I was in Utah for six days with my old man doing some serious hiking. So, oh wow! Um, right, perfect timing because now the foolish initiative this month is to work to get some exercise outside. So I logged some serious minutes at the very beginning of the competition. This was legit camping, right? This is like set up a tent type kind of camping. Yeah, we were averaging about 17 miles a day. With, nice. uh, with uh, all of our stuff on our back. So, God, I don't beautiful like, scenery. I don't like driving so many miles a day. <laughs> um, we're going to get to a couple of stories uh, from while I was gone, but let's start with some recent stuff. And, and we'll start with Apple because shares of Apple are up this morning after the company said it is on pace to beat last year's iPhone opening weekend record. If you're scoring at home, that was 10 million units they moved last year. And Jason, as we talked about on the Motley Fool Money radio show on Friday, whatever else is going on with Apple, it's all about the phone. Yeah, and I mean that's I was thinking, you know, the good news is that iPhone sales continue to kill it, and the bad news is that iPhone sales continue to kill it because this is um, one of those things where, and to be clear, I'm, I'm, you know, I think that Apple is is just fine. I mean, it it is true that. Phone sales make up the overwhelming majority of of their overall sales, um, and that's okay. I mean, they've really, really uh, keyed in on something here that consumers obviously love. I mean, I have an iPhone, um, and you know, certainly it's it's a great product. And I think um, you know, it's interesting with these with these models that are coming out, the S models. It's like a it's what they call an upgrade year. So it's not like they're going to a whole new model. It's just a new version of the old model. So, you know, people like me, I might I'm probably not going to be looking to upgrade, but there are people out there with four S's, five S's, whatever, that that may be thinking, hey, it's it's time to upgrade. What I think is really interesting here, the 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 more interesting news to me is is the number of different ways now we're seeing that you can actually get your iPhones and um, and then potentially get into like you know some kind of an upgrade cycle uh, where you know normally if you go to to get a phone you pay a you know a fee hundred fifty two hundred dollars whatever and then then the carrier is going to subsidize the rest of that over the course of your relationship but now you're seeing a number of different ways to go about this and Apple actually is introducing their own installment plan where. You know, you you they'll give you the phone unlocked. You're going to pay them a fee of anywhere from like thirty-two to forty dollars per month, depending on the size of the phone, and that's going to keep you basically in that iPhone relationship. And then every twelve months, you have an opportunity to upgrade to the newest model. And then and then what you do is you reset that contract with Apple to another two-year contract. So you're always basically just continuing on with a two-year contract. And over time, I think they would be able to, you know, eke out a little pricing power there as well, because the longer you do that, the higher the switching cost really goes. 
Because I think the more you get used to sort of your phone environment, the less the less incentive you really have to switch over. It becomes kind of a hassle. Um, and then they give you that phone unlocked, so you can shop around for the carrier of your choice. So to me, that's very interesting because it'll offer up maybe some more consistency, some more predictability in in regard to um, iPhone sales. But then also. And I was thinking about this. The one thing that always kind of made me wonder about sort of the watch, for example, was in theory, you're going to go in there and pay more for the watch than you are for the phone. Now, of course, you're paying over time for the phone more, but we know how perception is, mm-hmm. and you're going in there and paying $200 for the phone up front, and you're going to have to pay, you know, something like $400 up front or more for a watch. So I wonder, even though you're still going to pay less for the phone up front, because this becomes just sort of a monthly bill type of a thing, I wonder if then the consumer doesn't rationalize it a little bit more and say, okay, well, I'm going to take my big upfront cost and then buy something like a new Apple Watch or a new iPad or something like that. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out on their other product lines because that's really the big question is how are they going to, uh, you know, do with these other product lines in the future? Because as of now, it still really is just a phone story. Well, and another big question is China. And yeah. they went out of their way to talk about the demand in China for the new phones and the wait time and that sort of thing. But a little curious, Taylor, that late August you had this note that Tim Cook put out talking about how we're still experiencing strong growth in China through July and August. And surprising, maybe not given the environment for the stock market in general and concerns about China and the impact that's having on Apple and other companies mm-hmm. as well. But a little surprising, because Tim Cook doesn't really do that. He doesn't mm-hmm. really... He comes out every quarter. He comes out for the big events. He's not big for mid-quarter guidance, and that's basically what he was doing there. Yeah, I think it was just one of those unique circumstances where the whole market was so worried about China that maybe he just wanted to assuage people's fears, because I don't think that... I don't think Apple has much to worry about in China. It's one of those products that people just go out and buy almost without even thinking. Um, you know, you need a new phone. You don't really want to switch. I, I did switch from Apple to Android a couple years ago, but um, I don't think that's the case for most people that have an iPhone. I think if I had an iPhone five or iPhone six, I might still be with it. But it was a it was a four to a five in my in my mind, and I just didn't make that switch. But I think they're fine in China. But maybe he just wanted to reassure people because. Everyone was so worried, and and we're talking about overall economic growth in China being slower. I don't think that the consumers necessarily are going to pinch pennies on on a, on a phone that you use every single day. Don't you think their next quarterly conference call, the first nineteen questions, are going to be about China? <laughs> I, I would guess so. I know there was even you know there were, there were some rumblings out there that he might have gotten himself in a spot of trouble with the SEC in regard to that uh, email that he hammered out. Um, I, you know, I'm sure nothing will come of it because, I mean, in, in this day and age, the way that information is disseminated, it's it, it, no secrets out there now. It's the most transparent we've ever been. Um, I do, I do think it's going to be interesting to see over time. And we always talk about how technology just moves so fast and changes so fast. I mean, the question is, at what point do we hit sort of this maximum smartphone threshold where? How much better can it really get? I mean, you know, I'm sure that, like most people out there, I don't use my smartphone near to its actual capability. Um, I just can't help but wonder that at some point, are we going to hit a point where people say, all right, you know, that that new model isn't much different mm-hmm. than my old model, except for, you know, the old, the obligatory better camera, better chip. 
you know, little three D touch screen or yeah, whatever that so, Apple has now. I mean, I feel like you're going to get to a point because then it then it becomes a question of okay, is there something we use in lieu of the phone? And I mean, I don't think that's going to be the watch. Uh, so then, is it something else? I don't know. I mean, it, that'll just be kind of an interesting um, point to keep an eye on because I mean, I know personally, like I look at my phone, which is a six, and I look at the six S, and I think, well, other than you know the the 3D tactic thing, I mean, I I don't I don't know that I really care about we that. We might be anyway, there now. But, well, I mean, I saw a stat last week that something like seventy percent, maybe even slightly higher, of Apple's installed base of iPhone users. Don't have a six or a six S. You're so, right. So, you, you, yeah. so if basically three quarters of people are getting by in air quotes, um, yeah. if, you know, if they're somehow managing with a four or a five, and, and like you said, yes, it it doesn't have the latest and greatest phone or maybe even the top speed, but it's good enough. And that's and, and the six I think is big enough for people. I don't think that you can use size to your advantage anymore if you're going to go seven, because then you get into tablet range and then it just becomes cannibalization. Well, yeah, and you have the six plus that is sort of that phablet device, and and people are sort of appreciating the bigger phone, and you're seeing that play out. And well, maybe I don't really need the iPad or the tablet now. So uh, you know, I mean, I think. You know, we're at a point where it's it's kind of nice to pare back and just simplify it all. I, I don't want to have to carry around five devices right. if I could just carry around one. I was reading an article just the other day, real quickly, that, about biohacking. And there's this there's this convention out in California, somewhere in the desert. But people are like, I'm sorry, biohacking. Biohacking. It's where they yeah. steal your blood. And they're they're installing and... magnets and things inside their body. And and they had this one guy had a magnet in his eyelid that was able to transmit music right to his earlobe. From a transmitter, so he didn't even need earbuds anymore. So you could essentially become your own phone one day. How is that in any way healthy? I have no idea, but they're doing it. They have magnets in their fingertips, so they can sense magnetic fields and sensory overload. I don't, I don't know. But so can I walk NF, up to NFC chips in their in their hands that you can't really even feel, but they can wave it at the at the Whole Foods at the NFC payment, or you know, th- this guy was opening his car and starting his car with just his hand and. Entering his building with his hand rather than a key card, so pretty wild stuff. That yeah, that is um, <laughs> that's that's maybe a bit beyond. I think probably what most consumers would yeah would like. So, but that might be the future. Who What's knows? going on in your life when you say, "Yeah, I want the magnetic chip in my eyelid <laughs> so I can transmit music straight to my ears." Right. I mean, I think probably ninety nine point nine percent of the people would say, I, "I'd prefer to keep chips You're out crazy. of my body." Yeah. yeah. Um, See. Let's move along. On Friday, Goldman Sachs put out a note to clients cutting their 2016 price target forecast for oil, saying that oversupply could drive the price down to as low as $20 a barrel. Come on, Taylor. <laughs> it's Armageddon talk right there. $20 yes. a barrel? Now, this isn't their base case. This is just something that they, they wouldn't be completely caught off guard if it did happen. And they don't expect it, if it does, to last for a long time. But um, it's something where, you know, U.S. oil is still continuing to produce, even though OPEC thought that they could kind of go ahead and cut out a lot of the marginal producers. And to some extent, they have um, the IEA, which is an organization that a lot of Western governments turn to for data. And they do expect 2016 that U.S. oil production will will start to slow down. Um, maybe even growth reverses a little bit. But Goldman still thinks that we've got the capability to produce a little bit more oil in 2016 than we did than we did this year, um, and OPEC itself thinks that that might be the case as well. Even though they're expecting record demand growth this year and uh, above trend 
demand growth next year. Um, I don't think $20 a barrel is going to happen, but they did lower their forecast for next year by $12 in the U.S. to $45 a barrel and uh, international Brent to $49 a barrel. So we're not seeing much upside next year, according to Goldman, because that's right about where we're at right now. What do you think is the ripple effect for other players in the energy industry? Let's say, for the moment, mm-hmm. that Goldman Goldman's worst-case scenario comes true, mm-hmm. and at some point next year, we are looking at, and it doesn't even have to be exactly 20, it's somewhere in the 20s. Mm-hmm. What is the ripple effect for uh, anyone tied to that industry? Man, I don't even want to imagine. There's not there's not very many producers in the U.S. that could that could even come close to breaking even at twenty dollars a barrel. Um, from the majors down to the the people that are most likely to go bankrupt at forty five dollars a barrel, um, I would be extremely worried if that lasted for any period longer than just a couple months for anyone. Service providers, producers, um, refiners would obviously ha- have a heyday, but that's only if the U.S. producers can make enough money to fill their refineries and then get it to the pump. So. You could see ripple effects through the whole industry if it was twenty dollars a barrel. Yeah, and then I mean, you, you also don't want to forget about the countries in the economies sure. which which yeah. would and are suffering actually even now. I mean, I I've read reports of OPEC uh, bringing together emergency meetings and, and sort of you know talking about how forty five fifty dollar barrel oil here is, is is unsustainable for them because you have economies. Uh, Venezuela, you have, I mean, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, all of you have a lot of economies that um, are are very dependent on their energy production. Russia is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, low oil prices really, really put them uh, in in a really tough spot, and so um, it, it goes certainly well beyond just you know the U.S. based or or even foreign based E uh, and P's. It's it's. It's it's a global it's a global whammy that that a lot of uh, a lot of people feel. And you see the job cuts that we've seen just from forty five fifty dollars a barrel. Imagine, I mean, people would probably trim down another fifty percent head cut if they had to lose and pay twenty only only return twenty dollars a barrel. Um, and the write downs this year have just been astronomical. Even we're not even full year yet, and this is the highest year of write downs in the oil industry for for producers ever. For a full year, and we're only only nine eight months, months in. eight and a half months into it. Yeah, so um, there's still a lot more to go. You look at Wall Street Journal citing some big companies that are leading the way: Anadarko, Chesapeake, and Devon. Um, then the report that they're citing didn't even talk about the oil majors. And Chevron is, um, I mean, they're about 1.9 billion in write downs this year, just because oil, um, their their asset base has to be qualified at a certain oil price. And now they're now they're looking at 45 dollars a barrel, and it's just not. Prove it's just not possible to extract oil for that rate, so they're writing down at record levels, and uh, it's likely to continue. And to a lesser degree, you think about all the banks that are lending to these companies sure. based on those assets. And when those assets start taking those write downs, uh, you know those loans then become a little bit more questionable as to either can they be paid on time or can they be paid at all. And so you know it certainly uh, it reverberates uh, throughout more than just the energy uh, industry. I think October is when most of the big banks go back and look at all those loans that they've already made. So some of these oil producers. Producers could be coming under fire. While I was away, McDonald's finally announced what I think everyone but McDonald's had been saying for years, which is that they're going to start offering breakfast all day uh, starting October 6th. Again, I I think we talked about this at least last year that this is such a no brainer. We're sitting here saying, why aren't they doing this? I, I will. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I will. I will. Now, having said that, um, I, I did see some. 
a, a little bit of criticism directed at Steve Easterbrook, the CEO, basically saying, why didn't you do this sooner? And in his defense, he's been the CEO less than a year. Yeah. I mean, yeah. about six months or so. And, I mean, it's it's not necessarily a no-brainer, though, either, because, number one, when you you look at a, a business as big as McDonald's, and I think they're just talking about breakfast all day in just the U.S. stores, if, I'm, if I understand correctly, at least for now. Um, but, but you're talking about making... A really big change to uh, the logistics, the menu, the supply chain there, because you've you've gone from once what was a, you know, sort of a consistent offering where breakfast lasted until ten or eleven o'clock, and then the menu switched over. <laughs> Adam Sandler let us and all so know. There, there was a, you know, they they had built a lot of their supply chain mechanisms in to accommodate that schedule, and now you're saying that. You know, you're going to offer breakfast all day, which means now that's going to be far more unpredictable. I mean, the thinking is that consumers would like the fact that they're going to offer breakfast all day long. Does it really bring more consumers in, or does it get the consumers who are coming in just more selection? That's a big question. And and I mean, anytime you introduce more choice to the supply chain, why, you know, from the consumer's perspective, that's a good thing. You know, from the operator's perspective, it can be a potential big challenge, even for you know a behemoth like McDonald's. I think that involves retraining a lot of employees yeah. too, because you have your breakfast shift and your your afternoon and evening shift, and they're not going to. I mean, it, I'm sure there's not a lot of difference in in making an egg McMuffin versus a burger, but they're still going to have to learn how that whole process works. And the restocking of items is in the store is going to require some some overhead on the. On that front, and you know who's been serving breakfast all day uh, long for a while now? Bojangles. The Jangles. Bojangles. Uh, you God, look at McDonald's. Have a- <laughs> you look at McDonald's stock, and I'm reminded of something our colleague Seth Jason used to say about the Gap, which was for years you never even needed to look online if you wanted to know the Gap stock price. The answer was always, oh, it's around $18. <laughs> and for years, that was the case with the Gap. And, yeah. and now, with McDonald's, it's the same thing, but it's around $95. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. For, for a year or so, it's basically been within a couple of bucks at $95. Yeah. You know, I saw an interesting snippet, a couple of interesting snippets, actually. So, in line with the breakfast thing, they're talking they want to bring. Um, they want to move to the use of uh, cage-free only eggs. Um, what I just found interesting here was in the, the next the, ten years. Yes, the time. What? The That's timeline. What they said? Wow. Okay. <laughs> the timeline. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to like. <laughs> I mean, they're just eggs, right? Yeah. Um, and the other the other snippet I saw was that uh, they are apparently the the store base that is going to be carrying the McRib this year is being cut pretty significantly, where it was. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of U.S.-based stores uh, this year, it looks like it's going to be closer to 50 to 55%. So you can't help but wonder: uh, is demand waning somewhat for uh, the the all-famous McRib? Wow! I mean, that used to be the one bright spot right. in McDonald's year was when they'd roll out the McRib. And Twitter they, is ablaze and, with McRib yeah. chat. And, and, yeah, happens. and their and their comps <laughs> for the month of December would just pop ever so slightly. Uh, also in late August, Amazon announced it will begin delivering wine, beer, and spirits to customers in Seattle. This is part of the Prime Now service. So, in addition to other items, within one or two hours, you can have alcohol delivered to your home if you live in Seattle. Because who doesn't have the occasional alcohol emergency, <laughs> that's right. right? Yeah, that's right. You got a party, you don't oh want to hear the host. just tap the bottle. <laughs> I was thinking through this and I was thinking, okay, what are the scenarios by which I'm, if I'm living in Seattle, and 
like anything else, Amazon or any other company, including McDonald's, when they were testing, you know, they're testing it in one city or a couple of locations, and if it works, they're going to roll it out nationally. So I started to think through, okay, what are the scenarios whereby I would avail myself of this service? <laughs> and it it wasn't pretty. You didn't come up with a compelling A. I I came up with a couple, but a couple of the scenarios for me are basically just oh I'm I'm just by myself, which is just terrible. Yeah, that's not good. Like you don't want that. You don't want to explain that charge to anyone in your home. Chris, let's talk after this. As opposed to oh, more people showed up to this party than we were thinking. We're actually short on wine. Let's get a couple more bottles. College kids rejoice. Yeah. Well, I mean, I it's interesting. Interesting to note. I mean, I saw, I read here. I mean, Ibis World Research says that by 2020, this is going to be a 1.4 billion dollar market opportunity. Alcohol delivery. I, I mean, did Uber could see try that. it, and then they didn't. And then they kind of backed down from it. Who? I'm not I think sure. Uber tried that for a little while, and like a few select cities, and they backed down because there was just a hard way to you know check IDs prior to prior to arriving at yeah. your location and things like that. I mean, I could see this being for Amazon or any other business the way alcohol is for restaurants. Mm-hmm. It is a high margin part of the business, but it's it's just a sliver yep. of the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be I mean, if they tab that entire market opportunity, it would be like 1% of their overall sales this year. Um so I mean, this, you know, I mean, Amazon is just they're known for wanting to do anything and everything to become more a part of that customer relationship, and whether it's offering you <laughs> alcohol, and if that means enabling your alcohol or, or your groceries or they just want you prime to be drunk delivery online of, shopping more. I yeah, guess. I mean, hey, that's then and there's something to be said for that too. But um, you know, they they leave no stone uh, left unturned for them, right? I mean, that's. I'm curious to see when this gets rolled out, <laughs> and if it gets rolled out, but that remains to be seen. I'm still waiting on. I've yet to see a Starbucks in this area that's serving alcohol. I don't know yeah, about you guys. No, I haven't seen one. It's, they seem to be growing. I think I read some. Um, I read of some in Atlanta. So next time I'm down there, I'll check that out. Do a little market research. We appreciate that. Selfless, yeah. <laughs> selfless. In the name of of well, Irish research. coffee at Starbucks. You know, All maybe we'll do a, we'll periscope a tour of the facility and nice. we'll, uh, you know go a- from there. Anything for the listeners. That's right. All right. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.